Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're joined by Dr. Anthony Tolisano, a fellowship trained neurotologist to discuss noise exposure and noise-induced hearing loss. Uh, Dr. Tolisano, thank you for being here today. Hey John, thanks so much for having me. Um, so before we get started, I just want to lay a little bit of groundwork here for what we're going to talk about. We're going to cover some basics of noise exposure, some high yield concepts like OSHA standards for um, noise exposure, talk a little bit about hearing protection, questions you might get asked by patients, um, for example, go into the pathophysiology surrounding uh, noise-induced hearing loss, and then kind of break it down more specifically um, into acute and then chronic noise-induced hearing loss. So, um, but maybe Dr. Tolisano, if we could start with a little bit of background information, um, what is noise? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, Noise is any sound that you can hear. Sometimes we talk about the signal versus the noise and noise being the stuff you don't want to hear. But uh, talking about, you know, what we mean with noise or how we measure noise um, really goes back uh, with talking about Alexander Graham Bell, you know, the man who invented uh, the telephone. In fact, Decibel is named after him. Um, And uh, it's interesting. He was actually one of the first uh, founders of uh, the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AT&T. And I suspect a lot of his interest in in noise and uh, sound studies was related to the fact that his uh, mother and his wife were both uh, hard of hearing. Um, and it, although he invented the telephone, apparently he refused to have one in his house because he didn't think that uh, it was conducive to a good work environment. I think we can probably relate to that. Very interesting. And I guess just for some reference ranges here, when we think about sound, you know, classically we see things like zero decibels on an audiogram. Um, but what what is speech or and what is normal sound and typical listening environments, things like that? Yeah. So, you know, the the zero reference range is exactly that. It's a reference range. It was derived from uh, folks being tested at the World's Fair in New York. Um back in the day in 1939. And and these people went into a sound booth and they determined uh, a reference level and then created basically the the audiogram that we have today. Um, Some typical sounds that we are uh, accustomed to, examples, a lawnmower, for example, is like 90 decibels, which is um, certainly louder than uh, typical speech sounds. You and I talking right now, probably more in the uh, 60 decibel range. And so um, certainly, you know, loudness is in the ear of the beholder, but uh, it is variable uh, um, levels of, of how much uh, decibels there are associated with that. What about uh, any other common exposures uh, in terms of just how loud things are to more reference ranges? I feel like sometimes, like, for instance, you go to sports games and it feels super loud or any idea of how loud those are? Yeah, I mean, the I think the Seattle Seahawks would have you believe that they've got the loudest, loudest uh, sports stadium. Um, but, uh, you know, World Cup events um, can exceed um, 100 decibels pretty easily. Um, in fact, uh, at one event, I guess in 2010, um, there was a World Cup event of 144 decibels, about the level of a jet taking off. Um, so it, pretty significant levels of sound exposure that you can get there. I guess that dovetails into um, talking about Occupational Safety and Health Administration or OSHA uh, requirements. Any comments on that? 
OSHA is essentially a federal program that mandates hearing conservation programs if individuals are exposed to loud noises regularly in their work environment. And it basically translates to uh, 85 decibels over eight-hour time period uh, when folks are required to have these sorts of hearing conservation programs. And hearing conservation programs, basically uh, annual hearing tests, hearing protection, training, that sort of thing. So once individuals um, are exposed to certain amounts of uh, noise over a certain amount of time, they need to basically protect themselves. So OSHA allows folks to be exposed um, to 90 decibels for 80 hours per day. Um, so if you bank that number, then all you have to remember is that for every five decibel increase in that sound exposure, you're allowed half as much time. So that would mean that at 95 decibels, you can go for four hours. And at 100 decibels, you can go for two hours. Now, taken to the extreme, you can't be exposed to 1,000 decibels of sound. So in fact, they, they also mandate that you can't exceed 140 decibel peak sound pressure levels uh, because anything beyond that, even for the briefest of exposures, is, is potentially uh, long-term damaging. And I, I know another common question, um, especially from patients at times, or just questions I have personally um, when using the lawnmower or whatever, is hearing protection um, and how useful that is and the benefits of in-ear uh, hearing protection versus over-the-ear hearing protection. Um, could you touch on that topic? Yeah, I, you know, that's important. I think um, we probably vastly underuse hearing protection uh, in the real world. Um, and uh, as I indicated earlier, probably a, a lawnmower is, is louder than 85 decibels. Um, and so you probably should be wearing hearing protection for that. Um, but the reality is that uh, it comes down to how well we wear the hearing protection. It's pretty easy to wear over the ear uh, hearing protection, but they tend to be um, less effective um, if you were to wear the in-the-ear protection perfectly. So we use this thing called the noise reduction rating, um, and they can be kind of confusing. They can give you a false sense of security um, where, you know, perhaps a noise reduction rating of, of say, 30 decibels, right? Um, but in reality, it's not just subtracting that 30 decibels off the sound that you're exposed to um, because it comes down to the effective rating or the way in which you're able to wear that um, hearing protection uh, correctly. Um, and so a, a, a simpler way to think about it uh, would be essentially to look at um, the noise reduction rating in decibels, subtract seven and divide by two to give you your actual effective hearing protection level. So an example, if you are exposed to 98 decibels of sound and you've got a noise reduction rating of 29 decibels, turns out to an effective reduction of only about 87 decibels uh, exposure um, when you're wearing those hearing uh, protection devices. What about if you combine them? Let's say you throw the earplugs in and then you put the earmuffs on top. What is, can you just add the two reduction levels together or what, what do you do there? So yeah, it'd be great if you could just add them together and get that double noise reduction. Um, they definitely help and it definitely is additive to a sense, but in reality, the, the best case scenario, um, put simply, is to just add five decibels of protection for the device with the higher noise reduction rating. Um, and so you can't add them or sum them together. Um, if your better noise reduction rating is 28 with a set of uh, inner ear plugs and 26 with earmuffs, you would just add five uh, to that 28 for the earplugs and, and turn out to have 33. And 
you know, sometimes I guess I remember being on an airplane or something and seeing people take off the earmuffs on the tarmac or whatever. How, how much does that impact um, how much noise protection they're actually getting if you intermittently remove the hearing protection um, while you're wearing it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, they can get uncomfortable and people want to let their ears breathe. Uh, the reality is short brief periods of time where you're kind of resting or taking out the hearing protection can cause real problems. Um, and so for every five minutes that you're not wearing hearing protection, you can actually reduce the benefit by, by up to 50%. Um, so maybe I, I think we've covered some good ground surrounding noise um, exposure. Could we transition now to talking a little bit about the pathophysiology um, surrounding uh, noise-induced hearing loss? Um, and maybe, I guess, starting out, are, are there certain individuals that have a higher proclivity or chance, I guess, of developing noise-induced hearing loss? Yeah, they, absolutely. Um, there's definitely some genetic factors um, that play into this. There's sort of the tough ears and the tender ears when it comes to um, uh, ability to resist uh, noise-induced hearing loss. Um, and probably some of those genetics are related uh, to differences in heat shock proteins, which are thought to have anti-inflammatory properties. These have been shown in, uh, in studies in humans. Um, but other things like existing hearing status and medical comorbidities, folks with type 2 diabetes or other vascular anomalies can, can perhaps be more um, uh, at risk for noise-induced hearing loss. And how does continuous versus like an acute um, impulse exposure differ in in this? Yeah, it kind of goes back to that OSHA thing we talked about before. You know, that continuous noise exposure is insidious, and you can be exposed to a ninety decibel sound for for you know years on end working in a factory, for example, um, compared to one person who uh, has a, a, you know, fires a weapon on a, on, a, on a range and is exposed to a really loud sound without uh, hearing protection. Both are problematic, um, but obviously the, the short impulses um, with really high levels of sound can, can result in uh, permanent damage just as, just as well as uh, continuous noise exposures at, at what some folks might not consider to be particularly loud noises. And mechanistically speaking, I, I know it's a, a matter of investigation, but how do we believe that noise exposure actually re results in the end pathway of hearing loss? So, you know, when you've got those short-term, really loud impulse sounds, it, it's probably due to... Um, uh, uh, breaking of uh, the uh, uh, basal cells um, at the right, uh, where, where they connect, where the inner hair cells connect um, uh, at the organ of cordy and damage to Reisner's membrane um, and resulting mixing of endolymph and perilymph. Um, so fracturing of those cells um, can lead to that. Um, probably uh, not the case with those kind of uh, lower dose, uh, longer term exposures. Um, that's probably more of a sort of uh, cumulative uh, cell damage resulting in apoptosis and necrosis, and then resulting hair cell death um, as the final common pathway for, for all of these. And, you know, as you know, John, the, it's the outer hair cells that are affected first, um, and then the supporting and inner cells are affected later. And this is something that we can, we can sometimes see, you know, when people are tested with uh, autoacoustic emissions or other sorts of, of non um, kind of threshold uh, hearing tests, we can sometimes detect some of that damage before you can even get to it. This idea of kind of uh, hidden hearing loss uh, is gaining traction. 
And what is the idea of uh, um, bandpass filtering? Yeah, so you, you think about the the shape of the ear, the pinna, the ear canal. Um, it, it's it's shaped in such a way that certain frequencies are more likely to make their way into the inner ear. Um, and that's really centered around four kilohertz. Makes a lot of sense when you think about those patients with the noise-induced hearing loss. You often see a noise notch right there at four kilohertz. And it's because that that frequency is able to pass through uh, uh, the conductive mechanisms of the ear to the inner ear more easily. And it's based on, in part, the ossicular chain mass, where you've got you know fre- uh, high-frequency roll-off um, from some of those, uh, just having the mass of the ossicles and the stiffness um, of the TM leads to some low-frequency roll-off. You've got your tensor tympani and stapedius muscles, which also attenuate uh, sounds as well as impulse sounds. Um, so all these things are, are additive to the point where, you know, eventually certain frequencies uh, are more apt to get through to the inner ear. And my understanding is that a portion of these patients can actually have asymmetrical noise-induced hearing loss. And um, mechanistically, how is that working out? Yeah. So, you know, one simple way could be, obviously, if someone wears a hearing protection device in one ear and not the other. It's probably one of the more common ways that you can have an asymmetric noise-induced hearing loss. Um, but even without that, um, the head itself um, creates uh, basically what we call a head shadow effect, where the head uh, attenuates sound uh, you know, from the, the side more proximal to the noise exposure um, uh, relative uh, uh, to the side more distal. The distal side uh, receives less sound input um, and it can actually be quite significant up to five to 15 decibels based on, you know, different factors, how far away the sound is um, from that patient or, or individual. Um, so yeah, the head itself can can prevent some of the sound from going to the, the more distal ear. And in the context of noise-induced hearing loss, hearing loss, I often see uh, this idea of a temporary threshold shift. Could you define that for us? Yeah, a, a temporary threshold shift is, you know, thinking about it anytime you've ever listened to music too loud, gone to a concert, um, a sporting event, and you've got that kind of ringing sound in your ear, and then it, it goes away after a period of hours, maybe, you know, the next morning you wake up and it's better. Um, and so a temporary threshold shift is, is when you have a... a like it says, a temporary impermanent uh, change in your hearing thresholds, uh, but it doesn't develop into a long-term hearing loss. Although it's very possible that cumulatively uh, those are additive and and maybe sub-threshold changes that we're just not detecting. And last thing here that I wanted to mention or ask you about rather um, was, so in patients that they have some noise-induced hearing loss, is that something that is necessarily going to progress over time? Or if they use good hearing protection, um, are they able to conserve their hearing over time? Or what does what the natural history look like? Yeah, it's a, it's, that's a really important point. Um, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, I've already done this amount of damage, it's going to get worse. So what's the point of wearing hearing protection moving forward? The reality is that noise-induced hearing loss is not um, a, a condition that gets worse with time, assuming you've removed the noise exposure. So if you discontinue that noise exposure, um, your hearing loss shouldn't worsen specifically as it relates to the noise. Seems like a pretty important point uh, in light of the whole uh, uh, association between hearing loss and dementia here. So good to know. Um, I guess the next partition here I wanted to go down or break down is 
um, talking a little bit about acute noise-induced hearing loss, and then we can get into chronic noise-induced hearing loss. Um, and so perhaps starting with the presentation of acute noise-induced hearing loss, what is a typical patient looking like um, who's presenting to your clinic with acute noise-induced hearing loss? Yeah, so this could be any patient, right? This could be um, uh, a teenager listening to, you know, uh, music too loudly. It can be, uh, you know, an older older individual going out hunting um, and the hearing protection fell out when they fired their weapon. Um, you know, it, it could be someone celebrating Fourth of July and the the fireworks go off too loud. Uh, someone at a concert. So it's really any anyone can be exposed to a, an acute noise-induced episode that can result in hearing loss. And in fact, it's it's super common, right? In 2015, the World Health Organization estimated that over a billion young people are at risk for hearing loss due to unsafe listening practices. You know, we're all walking around um, with our earbuds and, and music uh, all the time. And so we're exposed to a lot more noise now than we probably ever have been in our history. Um, any associated symptoms that you see presenting in conjunction with the hearing loss? Yeah. So obviously very commonly uh, tinnitus uh, is a early indication of hearing loss. You'll have patients sometimes come in complaining of just tinnitus um, and not even aware that they do have hearing loss until they're shown sort of uh, objectively what their audiogram looks like. Um, and that's by far the most common one. Um, it, in folks that have blast exposures or real um, kind of acute uh, loud sounds, um, you could certainly have some ear pain. Um, rarely could you have some some dizziness or vertigo, um, but uh, the big one is going to be tinnitus. And then shifting gears to differential diagnosis here, um, what's the predominant differential you're considering in working up a patient for no- noise-induced hearing loss? Yeah, so especially in the setting of a, a sudden noise-induced hearing loss, it, it sort of overlaps very uh, significantly with a, a sudden sensor neural hearing loss, which is, um, you know, most likely viral, uh, inflammatory, or idiopathic sort of cause. Um, and so, you know, a sudden sensor neural hearing loss, our academy's got uh, clinical practice guidelines stating it's a loss of thirty decibels um, in three contiguous frequencies. Uh, quickly over the course of three days. Um, It certainly can happen much more quickly if you're exposed to uh, a sudden blast injury or a sudden loud noise. Um, That's not really what we're talking about with sudden sensory neural hearing loss. Um, We're we're really referring more in that clinical practice guideline to um, sort of that viral etiology I alluded to. Um, But, uh, you know, other things that we think about besides a sudden sensory neural hearing loss, you know, you can have a patient with retrocochlear pathology, vestibular schwannoma, Folks can come in, um, have uh, sudden changes in their hearing, um, and can sometimes mimic uh, a noise-induced hearing loss. And as we discussed, noise-induced hearing loss may be asymmetric. And so uh, it's incumbent on you to still be able to work that up, uh, make sure that if it meets certain criteria, um, that you consider that and, and, and do additional imaging if it's warranted. And maybe I should have asked you this in the presentation, but how often do you estimate um, that people present with asymmetrical noise-induced hearing loss? So it's probably at least 10%. It might be even more in certain populations that are regularly noise exposed, like uh, members of the military um, or folks who fire weapons frequently um, because one ear, uh, again, is going to be more exposed to that uh, firing uh, sound than others. Um, But at least 10% of the time is it asymmetric.
and 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 you mean mo- most of the time it's it's symmetric in the sense that noise exposure is typically bilateral or equally af- affects both ears. Correct. So yeah, the the kind of classic teaching is that noise induced hearing loss should be symmetric, bilateral, and there really shouldn't be a big difference between the two ears. And you mentioned um, vestibular schwannoma or, or other retrochochlear pathology. When you're looking at someone's audiogram and they have asymmetrical sensorineural hearing loss, you mentioned the 4K notch in patients with noise exposure. Any difference there um, in what their audiogram might look like when you're thinking about the two potential diagnoses? Yeah. So um, in, a, in a population or a clear history of a patient with a noise exposure or noise exposure history, and they've got that clear 4K notch, um, you know, it's been shown that these folks have uh, less likely um, a retrochochlear pathology um, than, than someone perhaps that has an asymmetry in lower frequencies, uh, closer to two or three kilohertz. Um, and so, you know, looking to those lower frequencies away from the noise notch when there's an asymmetry may have higher predictive value with respect to identifying vestibular schwannoma or other retrochochlear pathology. Um, but, you know, it, it's not a, a perfect uh, solution, um, but there are, there are studies out there looking at how to optimize uh, MRI and asymmetry protocols uh, to ensure that we're uh, using our resources effectively. And uh, maybe if we could talk now about workup here. So we talked a bit about the history already, I guess. Uh, anything on physical exam that you'd like to highlight when working up these patients? Yeah, you know, any patient that comes to you, uh, the hearing complaint or ENT complaint, you know, you're going to do a complete head and neck physical exam. Um, and, you know, specifically when it comes to um, an otologic complaint, always look with the microscope. Um, I tell my residents all the time that the... Uh, <laughs> that the uh, otoscope is a great tool for looking at the tonsils and that they really should be looking at the ear with a microscope. And what you're looking at in in these patients, you want to rule out barotrauma or tympanic membrane perforation or other causes of hearing loss. You know, sometimes patients will come in and they've got wax in their ear and they notice it all of a sudden and it causes a sudden change in their hearing. So there there are certain things that that could mimic um, a sudden change in hearing or noise-induced hearing loss. Um, And so, you know, just being complete and looking at the tympanic membrane um, is important. By and large, if it is what what we think it is noise-induced, it's going to look normal. And are you obtaining formal audiometric testing in most of these patients? Yeah, I, I think it's important. Um, you know, lots of times patients won't be good at estimating how bad their hearing is. You'll look to their partner uh, sitting in the room with them, and they'll they'll be shaking their head when when you ask if the patient has hearing loss. And the patient, says, ah, I can hear you fine, doc. And you know, uh, husband or wife sitting over there shaking their head, knowing that full well they actually can't hear very well. Um, so I think it's important to get formal audiometric testing on these patients. It's going to show disproportionately high frequency hearing loss, often that four kilohertz noise notch early um, in the noise exposure history. But over time, it can it can look a lot like presbycusis. It can look a lot like just a high frequency um, downsloping sensor neural loss that, that is very typical uh, in, in a patient to see. And then any role for imaging or lab work here? So not so much. Um, I think if there's an asymmetry, as we talked about earlier, especially if that asymmetry uh, is not at 
the typical noise notch and you don't have a good history of noise exposure. So I think asymmetry needs to be worked up. If patients have other symptoms, right, if they had um, vertigo and, and their ear exam was normal or they had facial weakness, right, these are things that need to be worked up with imaging. Um, but the kind of typical run-of-the-mill patient with a noise-induced hearing loss um, generally does not need imaging and generally should not require a lab workup. Okay. And uh, with, with regards to treatment, uh, how are you managing these patients typically? Yeah, so partly it's counseling, right? So as we mentioned earlier, um, the die is not cast necessarily with respect to what their future hearing is going to be like. Um, You want to make sure that they know that um, although they've been exposed to some noise and perhaps they've got some noise-induced hearing loss, um, moving forward, they need to be really fastidious with their hearing protection. Um, You know, as far as treating a sudden change in hearing or a sudden impulse noise, a lot of us um, are kind of treating it like a sudden sensory neural hearing loss with with steroids. Um, you know, I think there's less evidence to demonstrate that that uh, is um, going to be uh, effective. There are some studies out there showing um, post-treatment improvement anywhere from, you know, up to 20 decibels of improvement. Um, Some folks have looked at hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Um, This is, you know, up to maybe 20 to 30 decibels improvement. Um, Other folks have looked at N-acetylcysteine, magnesium aspartate, Epsilon, um, other things um, of that nature. But a lot of this um, is going to be for that sort of um, sudden noise-induced hearing loss. This isn't going to be for the individual that has a, a chronic exposure to noise and comes into you 40 years after working as a machinist. Yeah, and I guess uh, in light of that, if we could talk a little bit now about chronic noise-induced hearing loss, um, from a patient presentation standpoint, any things that jump out to you in terms of differences um, from acute Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned before that acute noise-induced hearing loss, it could be anyone coming in the door. Um, This chronic noise-induced hearing loss, it's it's less frequent. Um, I mentioned over a billion folks that were probably at risk for for acute uh, hearing loss uh, incidents before. Here, we're talking more about folks that have been working in loud environments. Um, It's often occupational exposure um, or recreational exposure, you know, as we've mentioned with firing weapons or music um, sort of involvement. And it can be difficult, right? There are folks out there that Uh, are worried they're going to lose their job if they uh, say something about the environment that they're working in. Um, And that's why OSHA uh, exists to exactly um, sort of prevent that type of situation. But it's insidious and it's chronic and patients and people may not even be aware of how loud their environment is. You know, you look around on an airplane, um, how many people are wearing hearing protection? How many of the um, uh, flight attendants are wearing hearing protection? Um, You know, one, one good thing to think about is if you're, you know, needing to raise your voice, yell to someone from a few feet away, that's already probably over 85 decibels uh, where you should be wearing hearing protection, um, you know, 80 to 90 decibels. And, uh, and we do that regularly. And when we think about workup and um, diagnosis for these patients, I, I think we've obviously covered a lot of it in um, when talking about in the previous section, but any other distinctions or or aspects that are relevant to chronic noise-induced hearing loss? 
Yeah. So I, I alluded to this before, um, you know, with the, with the comprehensive audiogram, um, pure tone audiogram, you're probably going to lose that four kilohertz notch, um, by the time someone's had uh, decades of noise exposure. And it's going to look a lot like a patient with presbycusis. Um, and so it, it can be tough to parse what difference there is, because as I said, these chronic patients with chronic noise induced hearing loss tend to be older, um, tend to be men more frequently. And it, it's, I think it's occupational and recreational exposure, as I said. Um, but again, I, I would, I, I wouldn't, uh, image these people or do an expensive lab workup or anything like that. Unless again, there's a, there's a demonstrable asymmetry, uh, between the ears. And with, the, with, uh, regards to treatment, uh, any differences there? Yeah, you know, again, uh, this this is more of a situation where, again, you're going to tell them, you know, moving forward, you're going to want to wear good hearing protection, um, but it, it comes down to hearing rehabilitation in these folks. Um, you're not going to want to go down the path of treating these patients with steroids or, you know, uh, N-acetylcysteine or anything like that. Um, that's not going to do any benefit at this point. Um, and so, you know, rehabilitating these patients appropriately with hearing aids, or if it's bad enough, um, doing an evaluation for a cochlear implant. Um, these are the sort of things where we can help patients. All right. Well, I think that about wraps up the questions that I had. Um, was there anything that you had wanted to mention that I didn't ask you about or that we didn't get a chance to talk about? No, I mean, I think it, it's important um, as, as, you know, we kind of mentioned a few times now, noise exposure is not going to be um, something that cumulatively, uh, once you stop that noise exposure is going to continue to make you lose your hearing. Um, and, uh, and sort of understanding the extent to which uh, hearing protection actually functions, not being um, uh, sort of uh, taken into a false sense of security with, uh, with these noise reduction ratings and thinking that you're covered in every situation. Well, Dr. Tolisano, thank you so much for uh, your time and uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. So in summary of today's episode, um, noise exposure is something that everybody's exposed to at some point in their lives. Um, for reference, conversational speech is typically between 60 and 70 decibels. Um, noise exposures that we often get in daily life are cut like a lawnmower, for instance, can be as high as 90 decibels. An airplane cabin um, can reach 105 at takeoff. It usually cruises a little bit lower than that. Um, Dr. Tolisano mentioned the uh, sports games being one of the highest uh, noise exposure areas, ex- um, sometimes exceeding what OSHA would consider safe for a single noise exposure. Um, and then Speaking of OSHA, they define what constitutes um, acceptable levels of noise exposure in the workplace. Um, Really all that you need to remember is that eight hours, um, you can't be exposed to sound levels greater than 90 decibels for more than eight hours a day. And if you just remember those two numbers, you know that every five decibels thereafterwards, the exposure timeline halves. So at 95, you can only be exposed for four hours. And then at 100, you can only be exposed for two. Um, speaking of OSHA, important concept to understand is, uh, the concept of hearing protection and specifically, um, the different types of hearing protection and their associated noise reduction ratings, knowing that the noise reduction rating, um, does not necessarily indicate how many decibels, um, you get to take off of the noise exposure, but rather the effective reduction is, is significantly less. And we mentioned, um, the kind of shorthand 
or shortcut to estimate it, which is subtracting seven and then dividing by two and then taking that number and subtracting that from the surrounding noise exposure level. Um, touched on pathophysiology and the idea of bandpass filtering and how really the sound that tends to make it through center into the inner ear centers around four kilohertz. And that's why we see that noise notch on audiogram. In the workup of these patients um, in the acute setting, oftentimes you consider sudden sensor neural hearing loss. And, um, and depending on the population you're in, up to 10% of these patients can present with asymmetrical sensor neural hearing loss. So it's important to consider working up for retrochochlear pathology in that setting. Um, in terms of treatment, in the acute setting, um, these patients are oftentimes managed with steroids, um, plus or minus on hyperbaric oxygen, oxygen therapy, and then common other things that have been studied that are sometimes talked about um, are vitamins, N-acetylcysteine, ma magnesium, aspartate, and epsilon, just to name a few. And then in the chronic setting, rather than steroids or um, N-acetylcysteine or things like that, what we're really talking about here is rehabilitation, so hearing aids. Um, or, for example, cochlear implantation in someone who qualifies. Um, that'll about wrap things up for the summary, and I'll transition to the question portion of the podcast. So first question of the day, what does OSHA stipulate as permissible length of exposure um, to a decibel level of 95 decibels? Correct answer here is four hours. Uh, recall that the exchange rate for OSHA that OSHA uses is five decibels. So every five decibel increase in noise, the length ex of exposure halves. So for 90 decibels, the length of exposure is eight hours, four hours for 95, and two hours for 100. Um, so therefore, all you have to remember is those two, the two numbers, eight hours and 90 decibels. And just know that from there, it halves every five decibels. Um, second question. How do earplugs or earmuffs noise reduction rating affect the perceived noise level? Answer here, um, commonly confused question, but it's incorrect to simply subtract the noise reduction rating from the surrounding noise level. Um, instead, you have to use this idea of an effective um, noise level reduction and know that it's much less. Um, you can approximate it by subtracting seven from the NRR on the hearing protection itself um, and then divide that number by two and then you take the surrounding noise exposure and, and subtract that that new number that you just calculated to get to your effective noise reduction uh, level. Third question here, how does using both earplugs and earmuffs for hearing protection together um, affect the noise reduction of the surrounding environment? Correct answer here is um, to add five decibels to the higher noise reduction rating. Um, although it intuitively, intuitively might make sense, it is incorrect to add the noise reduction rating of both pieces of hearing protection together. And last question, what is the treatment of acute noise-induced hearing loss? Answer here, there's no ex uh, standard of care um, numerous pharmacologic interventions have been explored, um, but generally speaking, most providers will treat this similar to sudden sensor neural hearing loss, um, wherein they might use intratympanic or transtympanic um, and or systemic steroids, and probably less commonly, but also uh, a reputable option is hyperbaric oxygen, oxygen therapy. Overall, in terms of talking about effect sizes here, it varies widely depending on the study you read. 
Um, but ranges between zero to 20 to 30 decibel improvement post-treatment uh, with these interventions. Other ones you might see in the acute setting in terms of uh, pharmacologic interventions include N-acetylcysteine, uh, magnesium aspartate, and Epsilon. Well, that'll wrap things up for today. Um, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.